0: Good morning, everyone. Hey, if you're joining us online this morning on our Facebook Live page or our website, we're so glad you're joining us. If you're out in the concourse, uh, wherever you are this morning, uh, great to see you. God bless you. And to those of you that are here in the worship center, uh, it's awesome. We are, we are in a series that's called Extraordinary. It's a study in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you, if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew 5. If you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seatback pocket in front of you. Or if you're up front, there might be one under a seat. I'd love for you to read through the scriptures with me, uh, especially our, our opening text. Let's pray. Lord, as I, as I hear the, the rustling of pages turning uh, to Matthew 5, I'm just thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the, the scriptures that you've preserved throughout history so that we can learn who you are we can know you we can enter into a relationship with you and so holy spirit in this moment i pray that you would that you would speak to each person that you would you would talk to us from the scriptures you would reveal the meaning of the scripture that you would uh, even even show us lord how we can apply the scriptures in our lives this week and i pray lord we'd be a changed people we'd be transformed by grace as we as we put into practice the things that your word teaches us today, God. So we love you and we thank you uh, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is great to see everyone this morning. God bless you. Sherlene um, and I, my wife Sherlene, uh, and I, had the privilege of touring Italy this summer. And we, we experienced some of the greatest artwork in history and, and really in all of the world. Um, so we, we got to go to Rome and we, uh, we saw uh, Michelangelo's uh, sculpt uh, it's called Pieta, and it's, uh, he, he completed this when he was 24 years old. A lot of us are still in our parents' basement when we're 24 <laughs> years old. And that work of art, uh, it was the scene when they took Jesus down off of the cross, and this is uh, supposedly Mary, his mother, embracing him before they took him to the tomb. Uh, great work of art in St. Peter's Basilica. We went to the Sistine Chapel in the, in the, in the Vatican Museum and saw Michelangelo's paintings, uh, in, in the Sistine Chapel on the ceiling, the, the history of mankind on, on one of the walls, the final judgment. Just incredible artwork. I'll refer back to that in, in just a minute. I shared last week this painting uh, from the Vatican Museum by an uh, 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 Italian Renaissance artist named Raphael Sanzio. And this is called The School of Athens. And in this, in this painting, he depicts many of the, the great thinkers of the Greek and Roman. Empires, uh, scientists, philosophers, artists, mathematicians, great thinkers. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. We got to go to Milan, uh, Italy, and see uh, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper painting in a in a small monastery in Milan. And the thing that I love not, not as much in in the sculptures, but in the paintings. One of the fun things to do is to is to discover the artist's interpretation of that particular scene. So as you're looking at, at, at a scene that the, author, author, the artist is, is painting, it's like, what was he thinking? Why did he include that? Why did he paint it in those proportions or whatever? And one of those things was in, in Michelangelo's um, uh, History of Mankind on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He goes through the days of creation. And on day six, when God creates man, uh, there's a picture of God creating Adam. And, and in, in, in Michelangelo's depiction of that, he has the image of God and the image of Adam the same size. Um, and people say that the reason that he, that he did that was because he firmly believed, as scriptures teach, that, that uh, man is made in the very likeness, in the very image of God. And he believed that about himself. And so as he paints Adam and God the same size, it's like we become a reflection of who God is in this world and he said he believed that that his artistic ability his creativity everything he was as an artist was a direct reflection of the nature of God so he in this life was reflecting the image and the glory of God so discovering the artist's interpretation of a particular scene or a moment uh, is really fun to do when we went to see the last supper painting by Leonardo da Vinci in Milan we'll put it up here there were so many there's so much symbolism in this painting but this the scene of this painting was when Jesus was with his disciples and he said one of you is going to betray me and this is their response to that statement one of you will betray me and you can see some of them are are shocked some of them are talking amongst themselves wondering who that could be but but as you look to Jesus left The third disciple uh, in the the blue robe, um, that's Judas Iscariot. That's the one that would betray Jesus. And his head in the picture is lower than all of the other disciples. And and, and Da Vinci's thought behind that was that that, um, Judas was about to lower himself morally below all of the other disciples. And so there's all kinds of interpretations the artist made as he would paint a particular scene. I shared with you last week that I believe that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is like this masterpiece. It's like this painting. It's like on this canvas, he's beginning to to show us and paint what a disciple of Christ looks like. What is the the character of a true disciple? And, And as he paints it, we're going to see that the character of a disciple of Christ is extraordinary. That's why this series is called Extraordinary, because God calls us to extraordinary character as we follow him, and, and, and as we think about this, this was last week's, which was blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and the picture of the hands praying and praying consistently, we're, we're going to continue to fill in the masterpiece of Jesus as we go week by week related to the character of a disciple. But the thing you need to understand as we, as we launch this thing, as we get started, is these character qualities are not something you can produce in yourself. This is not like you wake up one morning and go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be poor in spirit, or yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mourn, or I'm going to be meek. No, these are things that the Holy Spirit works in you that, that makes it unique to a disciple of Jesus. I love what Michael Wilkins says about that. He says this. He says, the individual characteristics of the Beatitudes are not self-produced, nor can we simply learn or emulate them in an attempt to bring them about in our own lives. No, they are products of of a life energized by the Spirit of God. In other words, as you submit your life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to work these character qualities in your life. It's not something you do in your own strength. So let's read together Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We read this. One day, as as Jesus saw the crowds that were gathering around the, the, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around Him, and He began to teach them, saying, God blesses those, or blessed are those who are poor and realize their need for Him, or poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, or meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness, for they will be satisfied." God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, or God blesses the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what's right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God blesses you when people mock you, and persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. The verses we just read, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 11, comprise a section of Scripture that traditionally we call the Beatitudes. How many of you have heard that phrase, the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes. Uh, The the Beatitudes, whether there's eight of them or nine of them, depends on whether you interpret verses 10 and 11 to be one Beatitude or two separate Beatitudes, but each Beatitude has the same structure. It begins with that statement, blessed are, or God blesses those, followed by a, a quality of character, which is followed by a reward for that particular quality of character. Blessed are, Quality of character, reward for that quality of character. Uh, the reason they're called the Beatitudes is because the Latin version of the Bible that Jerome wrote, uh, that, that first phrase, blessed are, that word in the Latin is the Latin word beati. And that word means blessed or fortunate or rich or wealthy or to be desired or full. It's, it's that life that everyone wants. It's that rich, full, wealthy, uh, fortunate life that you want and that I want. And so in the Beatitudes, Jesus begins to tell us how to get there. Blessed are this kind of person, because then this is their reward. So so last week, we only looked at at one Beatitude, verse 3. We looked at, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Today, we're just going to look at one more, verse 4. And it says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? How is mourning a blessing? How how is mourning something that we would desire? How, How is mourning something that makes us rich? Well, what does it mean to mourn? To, to mourn means you know, to be sorrowful, to be sad, to grieve something. And so we, we know uh, mourning and grief, particularly when we lose a loved one. Uh, when we go to a funeral, we, we grieve the loss of a life. But, but this type of mourning of Jesus has to mean more than that. Because, because that type of mourning is experienced by everybody in the world. We, we all have people die and we all mourn that death. And, and these beatitudes, these character qualities are unique to Christ's disciples. So what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are they that mourn? That's what I want to talk about this morning just for a, for a few minutes. And what does it mean that he comforts them? How are we comforted in the midst of this kind of, of mourning? So so the first thing I want to say this morning is, a, a disciple of Jesus mourns the reality of sin. A disciple of Christ mourns the reality of sin. Show me a person that is genuinely sorrowful, genuinely mourns and grieves his sin or her sin, and I'll show you a person connected to the Holy Spirit. I'll show you a person in touch with God if you show me someone that's genuinely grief-stricken over the sin in their life. Um, Paul says this in, in Romans chapter 7. He said, I know that, the good, that good does not dwell in me, <clears throat> that is, in my flesh. When Paul talks about his flesh, he's not just talking about his physical body, but the sinful nature, the, the sinful part of him that he inherited at birth from Adam. It's it's our disposition or inclination towards sinfulness. Uh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not, because I have this sinful nature. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice, I, I do the very evil that I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing I don't want, it's no longer me that's doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then that the principle that This principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now, remember, Paul's a Jew. uh, And so as as, as Jewish people, they were brought up, you know, to to believe in God and and to know God. And yet Paul is wrestling with this idea that even though I I know God's law and I want to do what's right, I I keep sinning. I, I keep doing the very thing that I don't want to do. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, in my inner man, in my mind, but I see a different law in in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. I'm bound. The law which is in my flesh, in my evil nature, my body parts. Then he says this, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul, as he thinks about his sinful nature that, that all of you have, all of us have this sinful, fallen, dark, evil nature that leads us towards sin. Paul says, it's wretched, wretched man, that I, wretched person that I am. The word wretched means disgusting, despicable, putrid, repulsive, reprehensible. When Paul looks at the sin in his life, he says, it's wretched. It's wretched to God. It's putrid before God. Doesn't matter how you see it. God sees it as sickening, gross, repulsive. And, and then Paul says, he uses this phrase, Who will set me free or who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now, that's a phrase that was used in in the Roman culture to describe a form of torture the Romans used for their criminals. What the Romans would do with some criminals is they would take a dead corpse. That's redundant, sorry. They They would take a corpse, a rotting corpse, and they would attach it to the body of a criminal, a live criminal, fasten it at the head, at the hands, at the torso, This rotting, maggot-driven corpse and the hideousness of the corpse would begin to pour into the live body. It's explained this way. The Romans sometimes forced a captive or criminal to be joined face-to-face with a dead body and to bear it until the horrible effluvia, the effluvia is the stench, As body fluids would pour out of the corpse and attach and and get onto the live person, it would create this stench and infection and eventually would kill the person. To bear it until the horrible effluvia destroyed the life of the living victim. Virgil, Rome's greatest poet, describes this cruel punishment. The living and the dead at, at his command were coupled or bound face to face and hand to hand till choked with stench In loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. Without Christ, we are shackled to a dead corpse, our sinfulness. Only repentance frees us from certain death, for life life and death cannot coexist indefinitely. Paul intentionally uses this phrase, this body of death, which was a form of torture in Roman culture, this picture of a rotting, maggot-infested, bodily fluid-leaking, stench-driven corpse would be attached to a live person. And all of the death that, that, that flowed out of this corpse would flow into the living person and eventually kill them. When Paul looks at sin, he sees a number of things. He sees a corpse, a rotting dead corpse attached to himself, And he sees himself with no way, because those criminals had no way to separate themselves from the corpse. Eventually, that death brought death to them. It was a slow, painful, sick way to die. That's how Paul sees sin. Sin, if it's not dealt with in our lives, eventually kills us, eventually separates us from God and his presence. How does God look at your sin and how does God look at my sin? I know that to God, um, lying, dishonesty, cheating, stealing are disgusting. They're repulsive to God. I know that lust and sexual sin and pornography and sexual perversion are despicable to God. They're wretched before God. I know that arrogance and pride, boasting about your riches, boasting about your drunkenness, not caring for people, being stingy and not generous with the things that you have. I know that's absolutely reprehensible before God. It's wretched before him. I know that hatred and prejudice and racism and all of the things that produce profanity and rudeness and oppression in our lives toward others stinks. It's, a, it's this stench that God cannot stand. It's, it's repulsive to him. I don't know how you see your sin. I know how God sees my sin. And it caused Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to say, wretched man that I am disgusting before God. When I go before God, there's nothing good that God sees. When I go before God apart from Christ, he sees the wretchedness, the repulsiveness, the heinousness, the hideousness of who I am with this dead corpse attached to my life with no way to get rid of it. So we could be stuck, right? Except Paul goes on. And he says, who will set me free? Who will deliver me from this body of death that's attached itself to me, that's killing me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Somebody say amen this morning. Thanks be to God, not me. I cannot cut this off. I cannot free myself from the corruption of sin, but Jesus can. And when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I am freed from the corpse. I am washed and made clean by the blood of the Lamb. I can stand before God, not ashamed, not, not afraid of him, but I can stand boldly before him in Christ because I'm clean and blameless and spotless before him. Not because of anything I did, but because I put my trust in Christ who overcame death, hell, and the grave. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who frees me from the body of this death. So, so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn their sin, for they will be comforted. What's the comfort? Forgiveness. The greatest comfort in life is being forgiven your sin. It's having the corpse removed. It's being able to stand before God, washed and clean and spotless before. That's the greatest comfort that you know that your sin is forgiven through Christ. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. The kind of sorrow or mourning God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. There's there's two kinds of mourning for sin. There's there's spiritual mourning, the the kind God wants, which is we, we feel horrific about our sin. We realize we can't change it. So we go before God. We repent. We say, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry I committed this. I'm ashamed before you. Would you forgive my sin and wash me? That's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But there's a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow also mourns sin, but it mourns it because it got caught. It mourns it because I got found out. It mourns it because I'm embarrassed now because it mourns because there are consequences to my sin. They're not sorrowful because they stand before God in a wretched position. They're sorrowful because now they have to pay some, some price, some fine, some consequences because they messed up. Which repentance have you? entered into? Which mourning have you entered into? Grief because of your sin that has driven you to God to be free from that? Or you just kind of feel bad about it because life kind of stinks now. One leads to life and one leads to death. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive the comfort of cleansing and forgiveness through Christ. So the disciple of Jesus mourns over the reality of sin. The disciple of Jesus also mourns over the reality of suffering, over the reality of human suffering. See, God mourns when God looks out over the world. He is grieved over the suffering that sin has caused. Not not just individual sins that we commit, but but the sin that that came into humanity through Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin came into the world. Corruption came into the world. Death and disease came into the world through Adam's sin. And so now we, we suffer as we go through life as a result of that. Jesus experienced this kind of suffering in the world. In in John chapter 11, Jesus goes to the house of of Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of a guy named Lazarus who had died. He had died young. And so they're grieving Lazarus' death. The story goes like this. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping... And when Jesus saw the other people, the family and friends, wailing and weeping with her, a deep anger welled up within Jesus, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. They said, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Anger and weeping expressed by our Lord. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved Lazarus, but some said, well, he healed a blind man. He, certainly he could have kept Lazarus from dying. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Why did you, you're familiar with that verse, Jesus wept. You might not be familiar with that verse before that says he was really mad. What was Jesus mad about? What was Jesus angry about? And why did Jesus weep? Because he loved Martha, and he loved Mary, and he may have known many of the other people that were there weeping and wailing the loss of Lazarus. And Jesus saw their suffering, their suffering that resulted from sin and death. And as Jesus realized that this was not God's intention for the world when he created it, God didn't intentionally create a world that was going to be filled with suffering. That suffering came as a result of sin. And yet Jesus looks at the suffering that they were experiencing, that that came from sin and death, and he was mad. You know, that's part of grief. Part of grief and mourning is being mad, being mad at the injustice, being mad that this this happened in life. It shouldn't have happened. Lazarus was way too young in life. And, And as followers of Christ, part of the uniqueness of our character as a disciple of Jesus is not only do we grieve and mourn our sin but we grieve and mourn the world that we live in and the suffering that sin causes. As we continue to experience mass shootings in our nation and in other nations of the world, it ought to grieve us. It ought to cause mourning as we, as we look at the suffering involved, not only for the people that died in the shooting, but for the shooter, the one in whose life evil has created a twisted And perverted mindset, a one that a person no no longer values life or values love. We need to mourn and grieve the victim and the perpetrator because we mourn the suffering that's come about as a result of sin in life. As we have loved ones die of cancer and other diseases, it, it causes mourning in our life. It ought not be this way. God didn't intend it this way. I'm not looking forward now to my life and my suffering without this person that I love and without this person that I care about. And there's a, there's a mourning over death. There's a mourning over disease that was brought into the world because of sin. You know, we as, as disciples of Jesus, we ought, to, we ought to mourn sexual abuse. I mean, it ought to really grieve us. We, we ought to really mourn domestic violence. Whether it's coming from a man or from a woman, we we ought to grieve and not only grieve the victim, but the one causing it. Again, because evil has entered this person's life that's caused great suffering and their suffering mentally and emotionally that's driving them to this behavior. We as disciples of Jesus ought to be sensitive to mourning and grieving those things. We ought to we ought to mourn divorce. We, We ought to mourn human trafficking. Do those things cause your heart to grieve as you see the suffering and know about the suffering of individuals? I'm finding more and more, and the older I get, like Jesus, being mad at the suffering I see in people that I love. I have a good friend that is going through a really painful, unnecessary divorce. And I'm watching his pain, and I'm getting madder and madder. I'm seeing what his children are going through now, and knowing, because I have a granddaughter that's walked through divorce, I know what road lies ahead for those children, the pain and suffering that they are going to endure as a result of their parents being. I, I, and it angers me. And it ought to anger you as you consider the things in life. And, and our mourning and our grief ought to drive us to action. It should drive you to want to do something about human trafficking. It should drive you to want to do something about domestic violence. It should drive you to do something about the causes of suffering in our society. We as the disciples of Jesus don't mourn without purpose. Amen? There ought to be purpose behind our grief to alleviate suffering in the world. In in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, who who gives us a foretaste of future glory, heaven, because we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, our redemption, including new bodies that he's promised for. There's a longing in creation to be free. To be free from sin, to be free from disease, to be free from death, to be free from suffering. All creation mourns and grieves suffering in life and wants to be free. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What's the comfort Jesus promises for those who mourn, for those who grieve the suffering in life? Well, let me share three thoughts with you this morning. The first thing is, as we as Christians go through suffering, whether it's the suffering of sickness, the suffering of relationships, whatever the the suffering is in our lives, the Bible says there is grace to endure it, that God gives us. In fact, James chapter 4, verse 6 says there is a greater grace, amen? Greater than what? Greater than whatever you're facing. Greater than your suffering, there is a grace which is a divine enabling, a supernatural power, an ability from God to endure the suffering. How many of you have experienced the excuse me, the greater grace of God when you've gone through a really difficult time to get you through that? There, there's a greater grace that God gives to us. The other comfort that comes through our mourning, the suffering in life is sometimes God breaks in. Sometimes God breaks into the suffering. And sometimes through prayer, God alleviates the suffering. Sometimes God heals the sick. Amen. Sometimes God delivers us. Sometimes God delivers the addict from his bondage. Sometimes God sets the captive free. Sometimes God frees people from mental illness and depression and discouragement. Sometimes God breaks in. His kingdom breaks in and relieves the suffering. And that's our comfort. Amen. Our comfort is that that as we pray, we, we see God's kingdom come and his power demonstrated to temporarily, and it's always temporarily until we get to heaven, temporarily release us from suffering. And the third thing, the third way we're comforted is this. Heaven promises a life without suffering and without sickness and without disease. So whether God delivers us in this life whether we just have to depend on the greater grace to get through this, the promise of heaven, come on somebody, the promise of heaven is that's a life where there's no evil, there's no sickness, there's no death, no mass shootings, no cancer, no domestic violence, no rape in the kingdom of heaven when we get there. We are promised a full, healthy, whole life. So as you walk through and mourn the suffering in life, the promise of God is that we are going to as Christians enter an age or that's all gone. So we mourn the reality of suffering. And the last thing is, as Christians, as disciples, we mourn the reality of hell. We mourn the reality of hell. Jesus walked into Jerusalem, and he looked over the city, and he began to weep. Why did he weep? It says he wept over the Jewish people. He wept over them because they had rejected him as their Messiah, And Jesus knew by virtue of their rejecting him as the Messiah, they were not going to heaven. They were going to go to hell. Jesus grieved the fact that the Jewish people were on a course of hell. It says in in Romans chapter nine, we're going to look at the scripture in just a second. The apostle Paul said that he would be willing to give up his own salvation if the Jewish people could be saved. He'd trade in his salvation card If the Jews could be saved. Who does that? Listen to what he says. Romans 9 verses 1 to 3. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm this. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. That's the heart of a disciple. He so mourned over the people that he loved, that did not know Jesus, that he said, I'd be willing to go to hell if they could go to heaven. God has given you a relational world, and it's made up of people that know Jesus and people that don't know Jesus, and you interact with them regularly. People in the workplace, people at school, people in your neighborhood, friends, family members, people you regularly intersect with. And some of those people know Jesus and some of those do not. And for the people that don't know Jesus, do you mourn their spiritual condition? Do you you have the, the maturity like Paul to say, man, I would do anything to see them saved. What are you doing? See, mourning is supposed to drive us to action. What are you doing to try to get everyone in your oikos, your relational world, saved? Are you praying for them on a regular basis? Do you care? Do you have the heart of a disciple? Do you you mourn over their spiritual condition? Are you willing to share your life with them and serve them and have them over for dinner and help them when they're moving and do whatever you can to try to build a relationship so that you can influence them toward Christ? Do, do you, are you willing to stumble through your presentation of the gospel to them because you love them enough? Even though you think, I didn't say the right thing, I know I, I said it wrong, are you willing to stumble through that and feel like you didn't do it right with the effort to bring them to God's kingdom? How much do you grieve? over their lives? Or is it just like, I'm saved. My fam- We're good. My family's good. My kids know the Lord. What about the, what about the other people that God sends into your life every day that are going to hell? Do you have that compassion, that love? God so loved the world that was on its way to hell that he gave his one and only son to deliver them. Do you love the world enough that doesn't know Jesus to give everything you have to see them come into a relationship with God? Now, remember, I said at the beginning, this is not something that we produce on our own. This is a work of the Spirit. So we need to be praying that God's Spirit would make us more sensitive to the people around us that don't know Jesus. What are you willing to do? Is it, is it moving you to action to change their spiritual condition? What's the comfort for the disciple that mourns the reality of hell? Well, one thing is those people can get saved. As you pray for them, as you share your life, as you share the gospel with them, God can use that to bring them into a relationship with us. You know, you know, John in, in, in third John verse four says, There's no greater joy than knowing that our children are walking in truth. There's no greater joy than to know that the people that you love, the people in your relational world are walking with Christ. So there's a comfort that comes when people get saved and God does save people, amen? That's why we pray. That's why we serve them. That's why we love them. Because the second part of comfort is, is God loves them. God wants them to be saved. God doesn't want any to perish. God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of truth. God wants everyone to repent. God is for you in your desire to see people saved. God is giving them a chance. God is making himself known to them as you pray. You can't control their decision, but you can know that God is for them. You can know that God wants them to, and if they just harden their heart and choose not to, nothing you can do, but there's comfort in knowing that God wants them saved. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Where are you today? Are you the person that has sin, the corpse tied to you, and you've not been freed yet? You've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never asked Jesus to forgive your sin. Would you you like to today? Would you like to stand before God clean? The only way you can do that is through Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Let's pray. If that's you this morning, I just ask you to pray with me. Just say, just say Jesus, would you forgive my sin this morning? I, I know that I can't forgive myself. And, and God, I pray, I just believe, Jesus, that you went to the cross to die for me so that I could enter your kingdom and be your disciple forever. Wash me and cleanse me in your blood today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? As we leave here this morning, let's just ask that the Holy Spirit would empower us to be the disciples he's called us to. Lord, thank you for this this moment, this time. And and I pray, Lord, for all those that are listening to me this morning that you would would work in us by your spirit, a, a spirit of mourning over sin and over suffering and over hell that will compel us to be difference makers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Everybody said Amen. Hey, if you need prayer this morning for anything, we're going to have a team of people up here to pray for you. Don't leave if you need prayer. Come on down. God bless you.